You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. And this is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. It's Thursday, June 9th. In March 2022, hackers stole about $600 million from a crypto network. It was one of the biggest exploits of this asset class to date and left many investors shaken. Can a decentralized financial system, like crypto, work if investors get spooked whenever significant assets are lost? Today, I'm joined by Bloomberg reporter Olga Karif and Bloomberg opinion columnist Parmi Olson for a look at the scope and effect that these attacks are having on the decentralized financial marketplace. Olga, Parmi, great to have you here. Thank you both for joining. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to start with just some basic principles or, you know, frankly, in crypto, I'm not sure anything ever is really basic. But Olga, we're going to talk about DeFi hacks. But I want to start with when we say DeFi or decentralized finance, especially as it relates to these hacks and these exploits, what are we actually talking about? We all know how we can use a bank uh, or a, a broker to make a trade or to take out a loan. And what DeFi is aiming to do is to do the same thing, but without this uh, intermediary, uh, such as a bank. So uh, DeFi uses computer code to essentially allow you to do all of the same things. Um, and this computer code can get pretty complicated. Hmm. So I'm, I would be, I mean, are you saying I'm borrowing money from a robot? No, you are borrowing money from another person using the same uh, DeFi app. Got it. So what this computer code is doing is matching borrowers and lenders without there being like a Citibank or a Bank of America or somebody like that in between. Exactly. Exactly. And what makes these prone to the kinds of hacks that we've seen? We're talking, you know, $600 million, $500 million. Why are these things happening and who are some of the folks being affected by them? Exactly. The numbers have been staggering and the users are affected. Uh, So it's uh, very often who's affected is just the users who are trying to do (laughs) lending or borrowing or trading directly with each other. And the reason this hacks happen is that to avoid using an intermediary, essentially the computer code uh, 
governing this apps has to get pretty complicated and it's very hard to audit it and to make sure there are no bugs, that it's functioning properly. Uh, and plus the various DeFi apps that are out there, they're intertwined with each other and uh, they're governed by communities of users very often. And there are so many different sort of new ways for hackers to try and steal, steal funds. And, you know, when you say the sums are being very large, I think in your reporting, you mentioned that something like $2.3 billion was stolen from these DeFi platforms in 2021, which is a more than 1,000% increase in the year before. And we're in 2022, and we're probably already at that, and we're only in, you know, the middle of the year. Absolutely. So, so just so far this year, just two hacks of uh, Ronin Bridge and Wormhole Bridge they have added up to almost a billion dollars. And, you know, Parmi, I would love to get your perspective on in any other, I guess, financial market asset class, if people were just, you know, losing a billion dollars at a time, that would worry someone. Oh, absolutely. I think right now with what's happening to the price of Bitcoin and other crypto assets, essentially they're falling, it's kind of hard to pinpoint whether that is any of that can be attributed to concerns about the security of these DeFi services because there's this broader sell-off happening in tech at the moment. It's affecting a whole lot of big tech stocks. But I do wonder, you know, I'm thinking about the people who are investing in these kinds of services and the people who end up losing money. And, you know, you could argue that this is ultimately just the rough path that decentralized financial services um, have to go to through to become more secure. I, I thought it was really telling um, with this one hack against a, a bridge service called Wormhole. And the the developers from that service actually reached out to the hacker that robbed them and offered them $10 million as a bounty in exchange for all the funds, of course, but also to figure out all the details on how they hack the system. So, you know, it's, it's like they want justice, but almost more than that, they want to learn how to be more secure. So I think this is the kind of Wild West that um, entrepreneurs are operating in and investors are, who are going into this, they're, you know, they're like pioneers of the Wild West. And, and with that adventure is going to come a lot of risk. One thing I would note is, you know, the early days of banking were also chaotic. <laughs> you did not necessarily have the regulatory framework that you have right now. You know, even FDIC insurance, which in the U.S. is the idea that if your bank goes under for some reason and you have up to $250,000 in it, the government will attempt to make you whole. Like that number, that $250,000 was increased as a result of the 2008 financial crisis when, you know, suddenly the reality that major banks could go under became a clear and present danger as opposed to a theoretical one. So we're always kind of dealing with this idea of vulnerabilities in the financial system. And Olga, I'm wondering, are you seeing anything that is potentially going to make DeFi less vulnerable? Or are we way, way, way off from that? I feel that we are ways away from that. You would think that uh, all of these apps would learn from what happened to them and, you know, uh, build more 
secure and robust systems. But if you look at a lot of the uh, DeFi hacks that have happened, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, CreamFi, for instance, it got uh, essentially hacked in the same way three times last year. Uh, you know, Wait, so hang on. The same people got hacked three times? Yeah, in the same way, through so-called sort of flash loans. This is where uh, you uh, the hacker would uh, borrow uh, money and return it in sort of the same uh, transaction, if you will. And uh, so, uh, you know, w- when you look at this sort of things, you, you start to wonder. But of course, the industry is doing a lot to fix this problem. So... A lot of different startups have sprung up that do code auditing of uh, DeFi projects. They try to find different bugs and prevent hacks. But uh, some of the projects that got hacked last year, they were audited and the auditors missed the bugs that eventually led to the hack. So nothing, you know, no system is perfect. And I think the main issue is that if you want to displace uh, intermediaries, the, the computer code has to get very, very complex and to the point where it's just really hard to find all the bugs in it. And I think this is sort of the main problem that this industry is grappling with. You know, it just is set up in a way that <laughs> makes it uh, more vulnerable to hackers than a lot of other services. Parmi, you wrote in one of your columns, you know, I think it, it may have been in January, that this exact thing that Olga is describing Mm. It seems to undermine the idea that Web3 or what we like to call Web3 is necessarily an improvement on Web2. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I I actually really want to reiterate the point that Olga made about the complexity of the code underpinning a lot of these services. And this is what I've also heard from entrepreneurs who work on Web3 services, which is, for example, that the the pro one of the very popular programming languages used to make these apps um, called what is called Solidity. It's a very very complex form of of programming. It's very rigid and brittle. So um, coders, for instance, you know, when you're building a Web 2 app, you can write your code and then you can try it. You've got lots of different opportunities to let it go wrong and see where you went wrong and then go back and do it again. You can't really do that as much with Web 3 services. You don't get multiple tries to get something right. You have to plot your steps out really carefully. Um, And, you know, something so simple as a typo uh, could potentially lead to a security vulnerability, not just a glitch, but an actual vulnerability. Um, And I think what, again, what makes this different to Web2 is that these aren't just um, services for social networking or games or anything like that, but um, people are actually storing large sums of money. And so if if there's a security breach, it has massive financial repercussions. And one thing, one other uh, point that was made to me by um, an entrepreneur recently was that there's a really prevailing move fast and break things culture uh, within Web3 made still. Fam- well, yeah, made famous in Web2 by Facebook. Exactly. But more so now in Web3 than with than with Web2, which has become much more corporate and very standardized and very, very regulated or not as regulated perhaps as it should be, but certainly much more than um, blockchain services. Um, and that just really um, it does not reconcile with the fact that there is so much at stake financially when these services um, are breached. Back in a moment with more from Olga Karif and Parmi Olson. 
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So this Web 2, Web 3 conflation, before we go too far, I want to just talk a little bit more about how those things are different, because I also think it's related to, you know, Olga's point about DeFi and and the point you are also making about complexity. When we think about Web 2, we're talking about companies like, you know, Facebook and social networking or Spotify and music or Amazon and purchases or eBay and purchases. When we're talking about Web 3, what are we actually saying? So with Web3, uh, we are talking about services that uh, often use coins uh, for incentives, uh, for example. We are talking about services that typically run on blockchains, which are digital ledgers uh, that support those coins. And very often we are talking about uh, just a very different organizational structure. So a lot of these apps are created by communities of users or supported by their communities of users. And so, uh, you know, in many ways, the idea behind Web3 is sort of giving power to the people, taking uh, power away from corporations and giving it, giving more of it to the people. But in, in practice, the power is still largely concentrated in people who had power before, right? If, if I'm understanding it correctly, a lot of the folks who are making money in Web3 are the people who made a ton of money in Web2 and as a result are, you know, very well positioned to be informing those decisions. Absolutely. And uh, basically the people who are emerging as powerhouses in Web3 are venture capitalists who were also big investors in Web2s and uh, very heavily influence a lot of the decisions as well as coin prices. Parmi, Olga's talking about coin prices, right? I mean, there's a there's sort of a phrase that is used both ironically and non-ironically in crypto about the idea of magic internet money and that none of these valuations really mean anything. Can you just give me a little bit of a sense of when people say like, this hack is $700 million or this company is valued at XYZ, what are they basing these things on? 
Well, as I understand it, they're basing it on the value of a particular cryptocurrency in that moment. So something like 120,000 Ether or wrapped Ether, as it was when it was being transferred through a bridge, was worth $320 million in US dollars. Um, But of course, that number can change all the time. And Olga, as somebody who's been covering this for longer than most people, let's just say, um, and you, you know so many of the people in this space and you've watched the rise and fall and rise and fall of, of various things. Is there anything about this year and the hacks that we've seen or the sizes that we've seen or the complexity that you've both described that has surprised you in any way? You know, um, I, I I don't think it's surprising that we are seeing more of this hacks. Uh, it just uh, more people are realizing that crypto you know, is big and is going to be probably bigger at some point. Uh, And so there are more users and more money moving into this space. And of course, the hackers are following the money. And so that's why we are seeing so much, uh, so much activity. It seems like almost every week some hack happens. But, But I think the bottom line here in some ways is that a lot of money, a lot of smart people are going into this space and uh, there are a lot of issues, but also with, you know, so much money and so, so much brain power going in, things will get worked out. That's uh, a lot of the people I talk to feel this way. And Parmi, just going back to your point about how Web 2 and Web 3 are the same, one of the big ways in which they're different or at least perceived as different is that in general in Web 2, you knew who the people on the other side of a transaction were. Or you, you kind of knew who the company was and you, you may know who their execs were. In mm. Web 3, you might be borrowing or lending on a protocol that's written by, you know, surely very smart, but 15 mostly anonymous people who uploaded some stuff to GitHub and, and had some Git and had some code review. And everybody was like, that seems great, but you have no idea who they are. Does this pervasive anonymity affect any of your analyses? Yeah, I think it's really um, disconcerting. I mean, I would be disturbed by that if I was an investor or someone who was putting my money uh, in these services. And I even just as a journalist, like when you are looking at these companies' websites or their blog posts, I I remember reading one blog post from a company that was describing what happened after they had a hack and they had this kind of war room conference call within an hour, which was pretty impressive after the breach had happened. Um, And they were describing the different um, types of people. There was like an auditor and um, there were these different, um, the the validators, but no names, you know. And it's just kind of weird to me that it's kind of these these faceless organizations are handling so much money. And I know that there are names put to um, behind the management of of some of them, particularly the well-known ones. Um, But I think the anonymity, particularly as this industry matures, is really going to have to change. And um, especially when money is being lost, people need to be accountable. Right. And, you know, that that idea of people being accountable always strikes me as so fascinating, which is that when everything is going well, anonymity seems to be fine, right? People are like, this is great. We don't need to know who these people are. That would be disrespectful of their talents or whatever. And then as soon as anything falls over, they're like, somebody call the police and have someone arrested. Like, you can't arrest a faceless entity and you you can't arrest a computer program. So, you know, there's definitely a disconnect between those competing desires. Yeah. And I mean, even like... I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around how some of these systems work. But, for example, 
when you're doing transactions on certain networks, you have these validator nodes and the validators are like these computers with a human behind them. And um, after one hack, uh, one big hack, one of the companies um, behind it said, oh, we're going to increase the number of validators from five to 21. But again, like we don't know who these validators are. Um, and so it's very hard, again, to hold people to account. So that's that's probably going to be a culture shift that DeFi companies are going to have to go through. Well, a word to the wise, do your research. Thank you, Parmi, and thank you, Olga. It has been a real pleasure to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You can find more of Olga's and Parmi's reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal on Bloomberg.com and follow them on Twitter at Olga Karif and at Parmi. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, in January 2020, the United Kingdom officially withdrew from the European Union. The fallout from Brexit, as we all came to know it, is still being measured across all industries. Some analysts predict it will take years to understand the full impact of this event on the UK economy. Brexit even affected the crypto market, especially as far as regulations are concerned. Bloomberg reporter Emily Nicole sees cautious optimism among investors about the UK's approach to crypto regulation. She joins me tomorrow. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, and this is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Email your comments, questions, or suggestions to crypto at Bloomberg.net. Follow us on Twitter at Crypto. The supervising producer and editor of this episode is Vicky Vergalina. Our producer is Mohamed Farouk. Zainab Siddiqui is our associate producer. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. Bloomberg's head of podcasts is Francesca Levy. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it. If you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.